0: Hello, my name is Daniil Hartman. I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. And this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Major support for For Heaven's Sake comes from the Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation. And our theme for today is stepping back from the abyss. And just like in all the weeks that preceded, we're at a momentous time and, and Ilana and Yossi and I were trying to understand it, to think about it, and to help you both see it and look forward in a more productive way. But right now, we're at an abyss, and we need to talk about it. And that's going to be our theme. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein-Halebi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself, we discuss a current issue, central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhag, Head of the Beit Midrash of Shalom Hartman Institute in North America and Senior Fellow, explores with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. Let's begin. Last week, President Herzog publicly pleaded with the government to rescind its judicial overhaul plan as currently proposed and begin negotiating with the opposition. In the meantime, the legislation blitz continues unabated. On the other side, the protests against the government are merely growing every day from week to week. In pushing hundreds of thousands of Israelis into a state of acute fear and rage and even despair, the Netanyahu government made a terrible mistake, and everybody knows that where we are now is not tenable. Unless the government heeds Herzog's plea, our country could be on the verge of a constitutional crisis and, God forbid, even a civil war. And if not a civil war, a profound, profound level of dysfunction, which will deeply harm the future of Israel. Had we get to this point? What can we do to avert some of the negative consequences? On the one hand, it's not new. For 75 years, we defied the odds and managed to keep a fractious society together. But there's a sense that this is a different moment. This is not a moment about a disagreement about a policy, a disagreement about the Kotel, a disagreement about a particular issue. Here, there's a sense that the future of Israel is on the table. And the way we are talking about it, the way we're handling it, is leading us to an abyss. How do we pick up the pieces, my friends? How do we begin to start talking with each other and to begin to heal our country? Yossi, nice to be with you. Good to be with you. You're hearing us from 10,000 miles away in Vancouver as you're, God willing, awaiting your first grandchild. Um, yeah, hugs yeah. and kisses, we're praying with you and holding on. Thank you, thank you. Pretty amazing moment and um
1: emotionally dichotomous because one one side of me is in anticipation, God willing, of great joy. Uh, The other side of me is living in constant dread. and um, I don't know whether to sleep well because things have never been better for me personally, or whether to uh, be an insomniac raging in the night because of what's happening to my country. That, that about sums me up. <laughs> Yossi.
0: So, right now, it's five o'clock in the morning. So, I think today you're the raging lunatic in, in the night. Right? <laughs> we got you at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you're not sleeping well today. Okay. No, that's right. So, that's right. So, let, let, let me ask. Let, Yossi, you know, let's. I have no interest in talking about the reform or the uh, overturn right now we've talked a lot, all our readers have probably read 400 different articles on each one of the core stages. I don't want to talk about flaws or non-flaws in the reform itself. But what brought us to a moment where we're on the verge, literally, of civil war or unbelievable damage to Israel's economy internationally? Netanyahu is the master of keeping us safe. That's why people vote for him because at the end of the day, we're in good hands. But as a society, we're beginning to break. What brought, well, what, what do you think is the principal thing that got us here? Just, just one small but important
1: correction. Netanyahu was the master in keeping us safe.
0: Yosi, uh, just for and, the record, what I did was, I was trying <laughs> to give you a chance because <laughs> I know, I know this is your mantra, and I know, so I tried to slip it through to see, you know, can I get one by Yosi because no. it's five o'clock no. in the morning? No, could no, you no, for no, like on one minute? i Could you for one minute, like not on no? This no? One. And, fair no, and enough. You know why, Janelle You know why? No, it's okay, but you can't blame a
1: guy for trying <laughs> because, right? Because <laughs> what this moment reminds me of more than any other moment, is the time before the Rabin assassination in the early 1990s. And at that time, I went from being a supporter of the Oslo process to being a, an active opponent. And One of the main reasons for that was I felt that the Rabin Paris government was tearing Israel apart. They were forcing a policy down the throats of exactly half this country, that felt that empowering Yasser Arafat was leading us to the abyss. And we actually stepped into the abyss with the rabbin assassination. And it'll be interesting, I think, for the sake of this conversation, to go back to that moment after the assassination and look at how did we pull back then? Because there's, I think, some very important models that are, are useful now. But just to further unpack your question a little bit, A government is forbidden to go for all or nothing, to try to impose the totality of its ideological agenda on a reluctant half of the country that in the past has been willing to compromise. If you look at secular Israel, the the enormous amount of compromises it's made on religion and state, on accommodating the ultra-Orthodox, on accommodating the settlement movement, it's sometimes i think that secular israel are saints and that's that willingness to compromise which has really defined religion and state issues left right all these years has gone unnoticed unappreciated until this government came along and forced us to recognize how precious the delicate balance and internal compromises that make-up Israeli society has been. We exist because we are a web of imperfect compromise. This government came along, like the Rabin Peres government in the early 90s, and broke all the laws. And I remember with the Rabin Peres government, one of its major mistakes, this was the year before the Oslo process, was to hand the education ministry to Shula Aloni, who was a radical secularist. Now, when you strip the power of religious Zionism. You you hand the education ministry, which was traditionally the ballywick of religious Zionism, and you hand it to the most extreme secular force, and then you empower Yasser Arafat. You're giving the religious community a sense that there's no oxygen left. It's losing everything. That's how I feel today. I feel that my Israel is being totally dismantled. And just as I opposed the all or nothing policies of uh, the labor government in the 90s that's how i feel today
0: about the Likud. i i really appreciate the comparisons to oslo i think are fascinating and i remember how oslo was passed by getting one member of the opposition to join the coalition by giving him a mitsubishi Yeah, today
1: mitsubishi you could mitsubishi of goldfarb <laughs> of goldfarb today you need a better
0: car you know you need a tesla at least but i think the comparison is, is really very profound. And the reason why I love it so much is that it points to an inherent problem of the potential of the corrupting nature of winning an election or of power itself. So you point to the fact that they are trying to push something through, it's not being done in consensus. And this moment is as significant. You don't change a country without time and consensus. I think it's very correct. And all of us have to remember that each one of us are sensitive when the other one is doing it to us. And I I really love that. There's another feature when I look at this moment and I see Levine and I see Rotman, or I see people who speak about, I am for the reform, or in a moment I'll get to those against the reform, but those who are for the reform. Most of them spend almost all of their time talking just to themselves. And your comparison to Oslo reminds me because I loved it. But guess who I spoke to? Yeah. Myself. Did I know, ask me, did I really know the depth of the disagreement or did I discount the disagreement? I discounted it. I did. And there's something methodologically You know, we're at a moment that we have to figure out, like, what we're doing wrong because our job as Jews is not to repeat the same thing over and again. You have each group speaking exclusively to themselves, And when you speak exclusively to yourselves, that's the real check and balance on government. Check and balance is not a formal thing. You know, you have the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. It's making sure that you're speaking to other people who are telling you, one second, there's another part of the story that you're not hearing. And so when Rotman gets and says, all the demonstrations, all they care about, it has nothing to do with the judiciary. They just want to overturn a democratically elected government. There's something about political discourse to your own people, where when you could sit in your own little room and you could figure out what the country and the pace and you could say, oh yeah, by Pesach. Let's create the most significant judicial reform in the history of Israel, and let's do it in a month and a half. And one of the more beautiful things, which I want to come back to a moment, is that a whole community got up and said no. But before we get to that no in a moment, Ilana, you just went through, or you're still going through in in the United States. Like, I feel a little depressed. Are we following your playbook? And that doesn't make me that happy. But you're you're already an expert at this moment of living at the abyss. As you watched America, what what was it that
2: got us there? Well, so it's actually interesting. I, I think a lot of people pointed to this idea of people not talking to each other and becoming alienated from each other. But one thing I have to say that feels different is you know after Trump was elected you'd see all these liberals walking around with the book Hillbilly Elegy because it would help you understand the other side it's like oh well who voted for Trump and and what are their issues and 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 I need to understand them i'll tell you what feels different as i'm watching Israel you've got people on the right protesting and you've got people on the left protesting so i actually think you're paradoxically from the civil war perspective <laughs> I think in some ways you're in a better place than we were, because it's not as simple as those who oppose the judicial overhaul are all liberals. It's yeah, it's when, not true.
0: Miriam Edelson writes a major yeah. editorial attacking. You're right. It isn't, there is an abyss, but it's It's a more complicated one when who's fighting against this reform? Yes,
2: it feels more like the government against the people than it does just the people against each other. So I'm, I'm just experiencing that, Good. watching it from afar. But I got
0: to tell you, I just came from a weekend where we gathered, you know, Hartman Institute has hundreds of schools that we work with. And part of what we're doing, yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is a commercial for the Hartman Institute, but it has a point to it. <laughs> but I'm allowed as president of the Institute. But part of what we're doing in shifting our programs is that I'm trying to create all the thousands of people who are graduates, I'm trying to create networks of people who will be agents of social transformation. I'm taking everybody who studied at Hartman and I'm saying, okay, stand up now. And so I went for a weekend with 50 principals. Just these 50 principals alone, the average school size there is 500, 1,000. One of the principals has 5,000 students. in there. So like huge schools. And I'm saying, stand up. Let's talk about what are the categories of a new social unified coalition. Right, left, because we're all there. Ilan, I want to tell you, I met there the people who I don't meet at the demonstrations. (laughs) I want to tell you, it's also people against people. There are some right-wing, there are, but there is a whole slew of people for whom this is something that they are very, very comfortable with. So you're right, it's not a right-wing, left-wing divide only, but there still is a very strong right-wing, left-wing divide. And the level of distrust... And by the way, I'm not just interested in people talking with other people. I want people listening to somebody else. I learned so much this weekend, just listening. I gave a lot of lectures, which moved me deeply, and I loved my lectures. But um, <laughs> listening to where people are and why, um, I think we're just we're speaking to ourselves, not listening. But you're right. Maybe a little saving grace, and maybe this won't move us to that level of civil discord, is the fact that there are increasing numbers of people on the right um, joining it as well. You'll see this last Shabbos here in Jerusalem, I don't know, half the audience were Orthodox, this, and they the, were coming- at the, at the demonstration. Yeah, and they were not just coming from the liberal shuls like Shirach Adasha, Tzion, Yedidia. I think half of Nitzanim, mainstream Orthodox shul, was showing up. Half of Ramban, you're right, Ilan, it is reaching across. So I think that's a really valuable thing to remember. But uh, you'll see, going back to, like, okay, they're pushing it through. They didn't listen, didn't talk. What was their core miscalculation? Because it's clear that there was a major miscalculation now. And everybody in the government, with the exception of maybe Levine, is looking for a compromise right now. What was their mistake?
1: You know, when you listen to people on the right or some Haredi some in the ultra-Orthodox community speak about Tel Aviv, there's this uh, patronizing contempt. Oh, these are people who, uh, you know, I remember my cousin, My I have a Haredi cousin who said, used to talk about chilonim secularists with two children and a dog, and they care about the dog more than their children. These are people without values. And I think that parts of the right came to believe their own rhetoric, that their opponents, who they call the left, anyone who opposes the government is the left, have no values. They are the repository of Jewish identity, Jewish values. And I think that uh, what these demonstrations in part are about are an expression of outrage. How dare you look at a population that sends its children to the army, that pays taxes, that is the backbone of modern successful Israel? How dare you speak about this population with contempt instead of gratitude? And so, Partly, you know, and this this goes back to what you were saying, when you only speak to yourself, when you only read your camp's newspapers, and you listen to the radio that's produced by people from your camp, you come to believe your own distorted reality. You're not seeing the other becomes a caricature. And that's what's happened. And what's so ironic in Israel is that we're such a small country. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's so intimate. Everyone's on top of everyone. We all know people from the other communities, but somehow know they're the exception to the rule. You know, They're the good ultra-Orthodox. They're the good secular. And instead of realizing that each community, each of our tribes, as we call them here, is the repository of another set of values that helps make this an extraordinary
0: country. Again... I want to apologize to our audience. We're not going to find disagreements. I think it's, it's, they miscalculated the values on the other side. Um, So you just said it, Daniel. you just said
1: it in five words. And uh, because it's uh, six in the morning here, it
0: took me two minutes to say it. That's right. It's exactly right. No, but it it was very powerful (laughs) and beautiful. I think there's another thing that they miscalculated. You know, Yossi, I am better at hiding my politics than you are. Or at least recently, you're so overt, you become so far extreme left. Yossi, it's so funny. Yossi's now the far extreme left. Uh, at least you help me feel that I'm mainstream. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's when, true. I'm in a state of outrage. Of outrage. You, you
1: absolutely. Are. it's emotional. It's not political. It's an emotional
0: state. I have my motions more in check than you do, for good or for bad, (laughs) but (laughs) I have a better denial system than you. But when the demonstration started, I even wrote about this. I said, there's nothing we could do. They have a 64-seat government. They won. There's nothing that we could do and that the people who are demonstrating are by and large not the people who voted for them. And so, okay, we'll demonstrate. And after the first demonstration, Netanyahu said, Oh, there were a 100,000 people. I had two and a half million people voting for me. (laughs) You're not impressing me. And there was a sense of disempowerment because in Israel, there's three branches of government. You know, you have the executive, you have the legislature, and you have the judiciary. And Netanyahu controls two, and he was about to control the third. And what are we going to do? But I think all of us forgot, and I can't tell you how important this is for the future of Israel we forgot that there's actually four branches of government. Mm-hmm. And the fourth branch of the government mm-hmm. is the people. Yeah. And that even though the people vote and so-called the legislature represents the people, in Israel it doesn't. It doesn't because of the complexity of the coalition governments. Many people who sit in the Likud are now in coalitions with people that they disagree with just as much as all three of us disagree with it. But either way, even if you win an election, it doesn't mean that you have the ability to do whatever you want, however you want to, because there's a fourth branch. And they tried to, for a while, say, oh, you demonstrators, you're anarchists, all that language, or the demonstrations are anti-democratic. What has happened is that there's a coalition of opposition to the government, which is far more powerful than the opposition in the Knesset. In the Knesset, It's mathematics, you won. And Ilana, part of it has to do with the complexity of the opposition. Because while in the Knesset, the opposition who is on the right are all standing and following their parties in the marketplace, the coalition of left, of center, of committed right, even right-wing settler rabbis are talking about you need to have discussion. You can't do this unilaterally. You add to it the business sector. You add to this the army, those people who don't have values, who just happen to be the ones who are protecting Israel day and night, those people you'll see, those people speaking and saying, I don't want to serve, many forms of conscientious objection, which I want to get to in a moment. Add to it the international community, add to it the economic partners, the investors, the high tech, add to it North American Jews, world politicians. There is a coalition, the 56 opposition in the Knesset has no power. They're going to lose every vote. But it turns out that the government has limited ability because in fact, audience, let me be the first ones to tell you, the reform is not going to pass. It might pass the first vote. It's not going to pass as is. Right now, Herzog is going to get up and come up with his proposal, and he is going to coerce the government because he has a coalition which is going to determine the future of the state of Israel in a way that the 64 camp voted away. So I think the calculation, and it makes sense, the last time we saw this was in the war in Lebanon, first war in Lebanon. There is a mass of people getting up and saying no, and this fourth branch of government is letting their voice be heard. And I think the arrogance of, maybe because we had so many elections and everybody just wanted to finally win an election, we forgot that when you win an election, you're just starting the moment. You really haven't, you haven't been given a carte blanche, certainly not to change the country. I think the makeup of this
1: government is a warning to Israeli society. This is the most homogeneous coalition we've ever had every government in the past even the rabin government in the 1990s had shas had the ultra orthodox shas party this government has no effective dissenting voice the likud should have been the dissenting voice should have been the by moderating the way voice.
0: you know you'll see they're starting there's 10 members of the likud who have been telling netanyahu now has to pick between those 10 And Levine and his party, because now there's a split. They're not speaking publicly, but people like Barkat and Edelstein and Dichter. And uh, um, anyway, I'm blanking on names. Let's see how they vote. But now, but either way, the president, our coalition, has far more. And the government, Netanyahu, is speaking over and again about. He knows he lost. He lost.
1: And this is what Alana was saying before about uh, the coalition in the streets being reflective of the diversity of Israeli society in a way that our coalition governments always were. The the very word coalition really implies diversity. And and the original sin of this government is that there was no real ideological
0: diversity built in. Right. If you stood with Netanyahu, that was it. That was the only question. Oh, and by the way, to our listeners overseas, Israel usually reports in the newspaper about Jewish life overseas when there's a terrorist attack, anti-Semitism, or assimilation statistics. Every single demonstration, protest, declaration, petition, which is being signed now, is reported at the top of the websites. World Jury... You are players here. People say, I'm disempowered. I want to tell you Israelis are listening. This coalition, which is a diverse coalition, includes now world jury. You are part of the story. Don't feel that you're disempowered. So, so it's but it's interesting because this government has pushed things
1: so far that it's really opened up possibilities that we never uh, could imagine never before saw. in Jewish But let's life. go
0: back to the abyss for a moment because one of the characteristics of this abyss, Is the fact that for one of the first times, or I don't say in a long time, the politics is also entering into the army. And people are getting up and saying, if you pass this, I'm not going to do reserve duty. If you pass this, I'm not going to fly. And the people who are standing up are the people in the most difficult, dangerous combat units in the country, or the most significant units for Israel's security. They're standing up. Those who don't have values, you'll see, are standing up and saying, I don't have values. I'm willing to die for this country. But in my code of ethics, it says I'm supposed to die for a country that is a Jewish democratic state. I'm not supposed to die for a country in which the judiciary is destroyed or in which somebody says, wipe out Hawara. I'm not going there. And this voice, it's interesting in the religious Zionist community in 2005 or even post Oslo, that level of conscientious objection didn't really emerge. Now it's emerging. It was and again, there. they're-
1: tra- it, it, No, no, it was there, it was. But, uh, but not to this
0: extent, yes. And here it's at the core of Israel's most significant combat units. Again, the opposition to these conscientious objectives, I told you, you're a Tel Aviv, you have no values. It's the same story, but it's not working. And the army, like, what's your position? Because this is an abyss that if we follow this, it's done. Um, yes. We're over. Is so, this- I,
1: you know, it's it's interesting, Daniel, you, you just used the word core. And what this divide in Israel is about is over our core identity. Israel is defined, defines itself as a Jewish and democratic state. Any attempt to erase either of those foundational identities is legitimate grounds for a public revolt. Now let's look at the Gaza withdrawal in 2005, when settlements were destroyed, people were uprooted from their homes, but the core Jewish identity of Israel was actually not being challenged. And so I wonder if there's room here to lay out a, a principle, which is that the only grounds for refusing to participate in The defense of the country in the tax system is if Israel betrays one or the
0: other part of its core identity. Of its core. I like that a lot. There's a great article. It's in Hebrew, and it was very, we're going to get it translated, audience, for you. It was on our website, written by a scholar at the Institute, Avi Sagi, which was very helpful for me. Because initially, I felt that the army, that's a line shouldn't be crossed not pay taxes, civil demonstrations, I'm all in. I personally don't go to demonstrations that aren't approved by the police. I don't like demonstration days that are called disruption days or it's just, you know, I wouldn't have locked Sarah Netanyahu into her hairdresser for three hours. Like there's things that, but serious, civil, concentrated protest, I'm all in. And I felt the army was one step too far or it was that the potential of we're stepping over the abyss. And Avi Segui wrote as follows. In essence, what he's saying is that, like you said, when I serve in the army, I'm serving under a contract. The code of ethics of the army says that we are the Israel defense forces of the state of Israel, which is committed to being a Jewish Democrat. That's my contract. What am I dying for? and, And
1: every soldier has
0: the written code of ethics in your pocket. But there's one other thing that Avi said, which I want to just share with our audience, and then maybe we'll take that a short break, and Ilana, you'll come back in again. Um, he said, you could say to the people who are refusing to serve, you're on the slippery slope to social um, diffusion or disintegration. You could put the onus of the challenge on the soldier. But let's switch it. Put the onus on the government. You're creating policies which soldiers are saying, exactly I right. can't serve here. Exactly so it's, right. not, it's not to say to them, oh, what's wrong with you? It's to say, if you as a government, and maybe this is what we're talking about, how do we avoid, how do we step back? When those in power stand and say, how am I responsible for creating this moment? What have I done? Not look at the person who's demonstrated, and say, oh, there's a slippery slope. You've instigated it. And by the way, the moment will come. When the center and the left, who in many ways, while it's not official yet, have won because the reform is not going to pass as is, we're also going to have to compromise. And we could also, you know, say, oh, no, let's keep on fighting. At some moment, it's not the people who are fighting, but it's the people who are instinct saying, what are you fighting for? That that's the ability to step back or to ask yourself, if what I am doing is causing this, then it's on me. On Oslo. We were so certain that we were saving Israel, Yossi, that we couldn't even listen to those other voices. And hopefully, at this moment, we could move in a different direction. Let's take a short break, and then Ilana will rejoin us again. Ilana, how are you?
2: (laughs) It's not six in the morning where I am, so I'm doing just fine. I mean, all I did was lose an hour of sleep this weekend, so I, I have no problems. You know what's interesting? I hate to do this to us, but I kind of want to check the recordings of us talking about the change government last year because we might have done something similar. We were so excited about the change government. And we like didn't even talk about the people who disagreed with it, the people who thought it was the undoing of Jewish and democratic Israel. We didn't even talk about it.
0: Ilan, I have to stop you because I want to make note to self. Delete those uh, podcasts, please.
2: Okay, please carry on, <laughs> I love, on, it. I love it. Please no, carry way. on. <laughs> I think it's a great. I really think it's a great moment to actually yeah. think about. Absolutely like, right. How do we bring those perspectives in on this show if we're in a different place? I, I don't know. Right. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, this whole conversation about the slippery slope of you know reservists saying I'm not going to go, and I'm fl- people who fly IAF say I'm not going to fly. I always think about this, you know, the the Talmud in Yoma 86B, there's this great line where Rav Huna says, once somebody has transgressed and they've done it like a second time, it's now allowed. And the Talmud's like, what do you mean it's allowed? It's like, it feels like it's allowed. So at the same time, it's like, yes, of course, everybody has to ask, what are they contributing in terms of the denigration of Jewish and Democratic Israel so that people in the Israeli Air Force don't want to fly? but you got to admit that like you're crossing a Rubicon and you've now made it a little bit easier to do that some other time. So you've got to work against it also. So I just want to, you know, throw those two things in. But what I want to do today is I I want to just give some vocabulary to what we're talking about. You know me, it's been too long since I've quoted wisdom literature from the Bible, from Tanakh on this show. So I'm going to do it. A book of Proverbs. And you know what's great? Book of Proverbs, but I'm learning it actually with my, what do you call your cousin's daughter? It's not your second cousin. You're not, it's not your cousin once or I don't know what it is. It's but called that's your what, cousin's daughter. It's exactly my cousin's daughter. So we're learning mishle. Bishpoche. Mishpoche. Mishpoche. We're learning Proverbs. We're learning Mishle. And do you know that there are 11 terms for wisdom in Proverbs? And it's not because they're just flourishes, like they each mean something else. Some of them are like discernment some of them are just knowledge, some of them are awareness. And there are six terms for folly, like literally, and they each mean different things. You could be an ignoramus, you could be somebody who purposely doesn't want to do the right thing. So I actually want to take one of the terms for folly in Proverbs, in Mishle, and I want to talk about it. Because I think that's where we are right now, a lot of folly. And it's what leads people into the abyss. And that word in Hebrew is latzon. And if you are doing it, you are a leitz, or I guess for a woman, it would be a sa. You are a scorner. I want to describe what this is. So you look in Proverbs 21, 24. The proud, insolent person is called a scoffer, a leitz. And that person acts in a frenzy of insolence. What's important about this term is that it isn't just that you're arrogant, it's that You act towards others in a scoffing manner. You have contempt for others. And what's remarkable about the scoffer is that the scoffer can't take rebuke. People rebuke you. They try to tell you. You just, you don't want to hear it. So Proverbs 9, 7 to 8, to correct a scoffer or rebuke a wicked person for their blemish is to call down abuse on yourself. Don't rebuke a scoffer. A scoffer will hate you for giving them rebuke. Only reprove somebody who's wise. That person will love you for rebuke. Now, I don't know about you. I find it very difficult to love people for rebuke. So like maybe I'm a scoffer, but I think that there's something to this idea of, it's not just your pride, it's your contempt towards other people. And the saddest is Proverbs 14, 6, which describes somebody who can't even learn if they try. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge comes easily to the intelligent person. Meaning, even if you start trying to learn something, you can't. Like, that's the abyss where you're like, no, no, I'm really trying to learn. And you can't even. Like, how do you completely atrophy that muscle of learning from somebody else? And it's funny, I don't usually quote like Greek mythology on this show, although my older kid would be very proud of me because he loves Greek mythology, There was actually somebody in Greek mythology called Hybris, which is not hubris. It is Hybris. It's where hubris comes from. And she was the demon of insolence and violence. And what I think is so interesting is she was either the daughter of night and darkness, which is sort of like has like a foreboding sense about it, or she was the daughter of air and earth, meaning she was the promise, the great hope of everyone. And because she was the great hope and she was going to solve everything, she could behave with violence towards those people. So I would say two things. One, I think it's useful sometimes to know that there are different kinds of folly and there are different kinds of wisdom because this is hard. we're, We're talking about like it's easy. It's hard. But I think it's also useful to have a vocabulary sometimes, right? Like you can have pride, you can think you're right, but that's not always the same as Contempt for others and an inability to hear rebuke, right? So to think about that, you know, sometimes you go back to the sources that are written thousands of years ago, because this is who we are as humans.
0: May we learn, you know, in the process of change, we have to point to the problem. And I think the language and the words could help us locate the problem. See, we're all experts in locating the problem in the other person, A little harder amongst ourselves, but I want to tell you because this connects both to what you said and what you said beforehand. I have been walking around saying, "I want a new national social coalition, but one that's better than the last time." Because the truth is that that was a national coalition, but somebody was left out, and so I am starting that process. But just pointing at it, talking with those words, give us an opportunity to grow as people. Because our job is not to create a cycle of folly where folly on the left and folly on the right are the same. So thank you very much. Yossi, do you have any last words for our audience today from the blackness of Vancouver?
1: I want to uh, leave us with a question, and it's a question that I'm struggling with. I've never had a problem dealing with fellow Israelis with whom I disagree across the political spectrum. And... In some ways, that commitment to engage with Israelis across the spectrum has been the foundation of my work, of my career. That's been the message that I've tried to convey as a centrist. I have to tell you, Danielle, that today, for the first time, I feel stuck. I don't know what to do with this overwhelming anger and frustration that I feel toward Israelis who continue to support, a government that I feel is leading us over the cliff. Now, I try to make a distinction between the government, which I consider to be beyond the moral pale, and people, good Israelis who care about the country, who vote for them, and they may, from my point of view, be mistaken. And I try to hold on to that distinction. It's becoming harder and harder for me to do that. And this conversation has been very healing for me and it's given me a different tone and i noticed that when i when i've been speaking about the situation in interviews or i speak an active higher and this conversation has really helped me lower my own tone and maybe that's the beginning maybe before before it becomes a rational policy it needs to come from that place of quiet and a changed tone so
0: thank you thank you both yoshi like I know for a long time that I need you and Ilana. Now you know you need me and Ilana. So I I think it's time to come, have the birth, come on back home, and we'll help you. (laughs) (laughs) My friends, thank you so much, Ilana Yossi. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Zvi Kelman with support from Michal Taylor. It was edited by Gareth Hobbs at Silver Sound NYC. Our production manager is M. Lewis Gordon. Metal Friedman is our Vice President of Communications and Creative, and our music was provided by SoCal. Major funding for For Heaven's Sake is provided by the Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation of Los Angeles because of our shared commitment to strengthen the connection between the truths in Israel and in North America. And I'm telling you, that connection is more powerful than before transcripts of our show are now available on our website typically a week after an episode airs to find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute visit us online at shalomhartman.org. want to know what you think about the show you can rate and review us on iTunes tell more people discover the show you can also write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. subscribe to our show everywhere else podcasts are available see you in two weeks and let's have a prayer that we'll all find a way to step back from the abyss be well my friends